Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining today, he's the founder of Pickle and Company, author, endurance athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host. It's Graham Brown. How are you doing today, Graham? I am wonderful. Fantastic. Great to speak to you, Alex. Looking forward to this. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do first with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about Mm. where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Where I'm from. So originally, I always say originally because it's a long story. Born in England, in the south of England. You may know a place called Wimbledon. Not far from there if you're a tennis fan. So that part of the world, I spent most of my, you know, formative years in in england and then as soon as i graduated i got out so um i graduated in 95 with a degree in artificial intelligence which uh you know is a long time ago to be studying something that's taken 25 years to come to you know maturity so when i graduated there wasn't any opportunities in ai so my only option was to go and teach english so I went and taught English in Japan, and that's where my journey started. So in 95, uh, I was heading out to Japan, and that was really where the journey began. You talked about growing up in England and then getting out of there. What was the issue that you had, or was it just the atmosphere and you wanted something new to go on your journey, or did you like anything that was happening in England? Yeah, of course. You know, it's not like I wanted to escape England. I just wanted to see the world. I was young. I'm very curious. I grew up in a port as well. So, you know, you're constantly looking at the sea. And I think curious people gravitate towards the sea because they always are looking out to a world of possibility. So if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, as I did, the excitement wasn't in Europe or even in the US at the time because they were both undergoing a lot of economic challenges. The excitement was in Asia, particularly Japan. That was, you know, Japan Inc. It was very exciting technology, new, cutting edge. And so when I graduated, even though it was the end of the Japanese bubble, brands like Sony and Toshiba and TDK, these were big names back then. I wanted to go and see. That's my driving that's the the through story the arrow of my narrative in the journey is that i wanted to go and see the world and for me teaching english wasn't ai but it was a passport i could go and see the future and that's where you know as soon as i had the opportunity i was i was in there was no questions at all so it really wasn't about i wanted to escape england it was about i wanted to go and see what was going on in the world when did you first fi- figure out that you wanted to get into artificial intelligence or kind of in that field as you were getting older? Uh, well, I was always programming. So that's my background. I programmed my first computer in 1981, <laughs> which I imagine for a lot of your listeners was before they were born. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a 1K computer, which was command line, a ZX81 made by a company in England called Sinclair, which are long gone, like many of these sort of, you know, like the Commodores and these kind of companies that have disappeared, Wang, etc. Now, I was programming on that since the early 80s. I was like fascinated by these computers. In the days when you had, everything was command line, you'd have to type in your commands like 10, print, hello, 20, go to 10, those kind of programs. And then when I, when I was older, I was discovered this thing called psychology where, you know, I could really understand people. So there was computing, which was like creating tools and creating programs. And then there was psychology, which was understanding people and how they behaved. And then there was this intersection I discovered of computational psychology. I was like fascinated by this thing. And it was called cognitive psychology, computational psychology, which was really AI. I mean, it all fell under the AI umbrella because we didn't have machine learning back then in the way we do. So early in the 90s, I got into this area and discovered that actually you could model people using computers. And I was fascinated by this. You could model simulations of not just people, but animals, you know, like flocking behavior, robots. And for me, that was fascinating because nothing like that ever existed in my world before. So I could really understand people and how they ticked. 
I think it's just amazing how you talked about the things that you did and how nowadays it's just common for people to build a computer or the artificial intelligence. But when you started, it was just groundbreaking or not much was out there. Do you think the knowledge that you gained back then, fast forwarding to now, Mm. helped you if you were able to get into that field still? Well, you come from a different place, Alex. So that's important. It's a bit like um, if you, let's say you're in a corporate now, but you started your career as a sales guy, you start from a different place. You know, when you learn sales, like shop floor sales, you learn customer relationships, you learn the power of trust, and you take that all the way up to being a CEO in your journey. And it's the same with what I started out in AI. It was philosophical as its core. So when you learned AI in the 90s, because the computational power wasn't that what it is today, you learned about what is intelligence? Why are we intelligent? Like what is consciousness? And how do people influence each other, for example? These sort of very philosophical questions, which you can take forward to business today when you look at AI and you look at communication and you look at how we interact with each other and so on. Whereas, you know, if you came from today, if I graduated with a machine learning degree, I would have learned algorithms and libraries, which are useful and very powerful, but I would have learned nothing about the why behind it. You know, why are we doing this? What, what's the purpose of automating all these processes? Because you can just automate everything. And then what's left? What do we do? What do the human beings do? So that's the key is that if you come from that position of a more horizontal understanding of AI, as opposed to a vertical understanding, you know, it's very broad philosophical, then you can understand what the end goal is. And the end goal is if we can automate all this heavy lifting, right? We can focus on this stuff at the top. So the question is, what is that stuff at the top? What makes us more human? What does this free up all this time to do? And that's the difference is just focusing on the nuts and bolts of what many people do today. I think that's very interesting because it almost sounds like we're all learning, like just learning it, not knowing like why we are learning it in a way Mm. or like, why is this useful for us? And I think that's just the difference of the time periods. Everything is just evolving over time. Growing up, did you have any inspirations or someone that you motivated you to follow your goals and dreams? It's a very interesting question and something I've thought a lot about, Alex, and I know the importance of this. And actually, I didn't, not until my later, my adult years, is I wasn't surrounded by uh, like really strong entrepreneurial role models. I didn't have anybody in my network who was of that world you know, a very working class family. And the only people I knew who were doing their own thing, like running their own businesses were the tradesmen, you know, the plumbers and the gas Mm -hmm. electricians and all these kind of people, but they weren't what we would call an entrepreneur. So when I looked around, you know, I searched my network and a lot of people when they start their own business or start that journey are influenced by a dad or an uncle or a cousin who has their own business and say, yeah, come and work for me for the summer and just kind of, you know, tidy up the office type internship. But that gives you experience and exposure to that world. I had none of that. And therefore I started looking for those people in my twenties. Who are those people? And they didn't lie in my network. So I had to then turn to books and read. And so all of my inspirations that you mentioned you know, the people who I looked up to, I discovered in books, you know, I, I became an avid consumer of stories in going all the way back to the very traditional uh, entrepreneurial stories, like the Henry Fords and the Onassis's and the Rockefellers from that era, because I was starting in the nineties, there wasn't Zuckerberg and Mark yeah. Cuban and even Bill Gates wasn't really a thing yet. Steve Jobs was a has-been in 95. So all my role models and mentors were the stories I consumed, and still I do today. I'm avid consumer of story and books, and that's what I think has been the best inspiration for me. 
when you were reading those stories and books, did you kind of see those people and see them kind of in you in a way or the things that you've gone through that they've gone through also? And that's what brought inspiration or was there a certain topic that they talked about or they went through that caught your eye? There definitely was a certain topic. And what really inspired me, and it's amazing that we don't know this by default, and it says a lot about upbringing and the people you're exposed to. But I discovered in these stories that there were people who could change reality. There were people who could say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to change this. And I want to be successful. And I had never experienced those people before. It's strange to say, because that I work a lot with startups now and everybody thinks like that. Everybody thinks that it's all down to me and now I've got to grow this business. And if I screw up, it's my fault. But where I came from, nobody had that mindset. Everybody's mindset was your only way to success was get a good education. And you could escape poverty. That was it. And therefore, this idea that you could be in some way in control or defining your story was a revelation for me. And it was like, you know, mind blown. I'd have been, it's all like I'd been living in this house my whole life, in, but I'd only known one room. And then suddenly somebody opened a door and said, oh, by the way, this exists. And, I'm, you know, for me, it was, you know, there was a lot of reckoning to do. But you, the, what's really interesting about that, Alex, is, you know, when we talk about journeys, is that has to be learned. We don't get born with this stuff. We don't get instilled with this idea that you can take a journey, that you can change your life. And that has to be absorbed through people around us. Because if people don't know that, they just carry on with their existence. Do you think you've grown as a person going through those journeys that you've gone through? Oh, yeah. That's the point of the journey, isn't it? Yep. That you come out battered and improved on the other side. I think it's always a conversation that people talk about how I think people grow and they learn so much about themselves going through the journey instead of just giving everything handed to them. And I Mm. mean, nowadays you see it with social media, TV shows, movies, and these characters are these actual people that are just living this luxurious life, but they have, they haven't worked for it. And especially Mm. with kids, they're just handed everything. And you're thinking, as you were growing up, look at all I had to work for. But Mm. you're thinking about it. You're like, wow, I really have come my way and I've gone on that journey and it's taught me so much. And I rather worked for it than just been given it. Mm. Yeah. And you value it. Yes. That's the important part. It's difficult because when you get it, then you have children who, or you have people who look up to you. And you have to realize that they have to work for it as well. You obviously want to provide. I'm nearly 50 years old now. I've got a son who's 15. So, you know, he's just kind of starting his journey. You don't want him to go through the things that I went through. Yeah. The adversity. But at the same time, you want him to discover the value of things. I don't want to give him everything, um, you know, served on a silver plate. Because he would never know the value of it money, just items, you know, material things as well. But at the same time, I think the best way to teach people that is, for example, that's how people learn. They look at you and they say the three rules of parenting are example, example, example. And you can say anything to your children, but they'll just watch you and see what you do. And that's why, for example, if you're an entrepreneur, they can see it, they can read it. You know, if they see somebody who's just constantly struggling and just constantly stressed as an entrepreneur, when they grow up, they probably won't want to be an entrepreneur, no matter how much yeah. you tell them how good it is, because they'll associate that lifestyle with just drama. So you have to be very conscious and of how you present that as well, the lessons that you're learning and your experience to other people, because they will absorb it no matter what you say. They'll see in you the reality of that journey and what it means and how it's affecting you. 
Was your family very supportive on your decision to explore and go to and start teaching English in Japan or traveling, basically? Yeah. Um, my family were a very traditional. Uh, so to give a background, my mother was from Scotland, came from a very traditional working class uh, family. Her dad was a shipbuilder. So you can imagine it's very blue collar. And my dad came from a family of farmers. So they didn't know anything about this. But interestingly, like my dad was in the Marines and my mom had traveled before I was born. So they'd both been in Asia and I was exposed through in the house. There were strange pictures of like Chinese paintings and stuff. And you just assume they're just there when you grow up. You never question them. They're just there. And that kind of influences you. So when I did decide to go, they were never against it, but they were never for it. It was just like, yeah, fine, go. And when I started my business, they were never for it or against it. They were just like, fine, do what you need to do. They were, you know, my dad was never like, yeah, like go on son, like you're going to be really successful. I never had that. It was just, okay, fine. Just do what you've got to do, which later in life you reflect on and you think, was that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, they just let me get on with it. They were never kind of giving me the pep talks or the motivational talks that you see in the movies. Right. Yeah. So we kind of fantasize about that stuff. Like, yeah, you know, like it's great. I, I know people who do have those parents who are really supportive and, you know, they'll be the first investors in the business and so on, but I never had that. But I'm not complaining about it. So I just think, you know, it, in some cases, I think a lot of people, it's just fantasy that you, and, and if they are supportive, that's great, but you've just got to make your own way. Was it hard not having that full on support or was it more that your parents came up through a working collared or working hard kind of mm. mentality where they wanted to see you prove yourself that this is the path that you wanted to take and see those results that they wanted to have? Hmm. I don't think it was hard. It was just, it meant that you had to dig deeper in the challenge. And in a way it made the challenge sweeter mm -hmm. because you had something to prove. I had to prove that this was going to work. If, for example, imagine my dad was a successful entrepreneur and then, you know, gave me all the support, even funded my business and it failed. It's fine. I would just kind of walk away from it and start something else. But for me, if I'd failed, it wasn't just, my parents, it was the extended family and friends who, you know, taken a very traditional route in their business, sorry, in their career, they were looking at me and they weren't willing me to fail. But you know that if you did fail, it would reinforce the idea that my pathway, my journey was the wrong one to them. And therefore they'd feel satisfied with that. So that's the kind of interesting dynamic is that you are now carrying all this expectation that you had to make this work, which was very heavy burden because every time you met your friends from back in university or college, you know, they would, how's, how's it going? And you, you know, they didn't want to hear that it's going really well. You know, that they, they got that job at that very dull corporate or they, you know, were working for this company their whole life. And there was maybe a little bit of jealousy in there or maybe a little bit of fear in there. So that was a burden that I carried, but that was a great energy to work with. Right. And when, you know, then was the point where I sold the business and traveled the world for four years. That's when people were, I think you really found out who your friends were. Yeah. So talk mm -hmm. about that first business that you went for. What was the concept and what was the impact it had? So the first successful business, let's forget the ones that lasted six months and didn't go anywhere selling websites. That was just kind of, what can I do? The first real business that I would call, you know, something that was sustainable was a business selling research to telecoms companies communications companies specifically about how those companies could communicate with young people. So imagine now 1998, which again, it's a long, long time ago, <laughs> but in that world, mobile phones weren't what we know them today. Mobile phones were aimed at middle-aged guys, right? And it was guys and it was middle-aged yep. you know, and they were expensive and they're all about road warriors and, 
you know, those kind of very power play type products, right? But in 98, I'd, so I'd come back from Japan and I'd seen young Japanese high school girls using mobile phones in a very different way. And I saw them texting. I saw them sharing. I saw them sharing content. I saw them using text language. And as a communications person, I was very fascinated by this. Going back to the old world in 98, I then thought there was an opportunity here because all of these mobile companies are growing very fast. And what's happening is those road warriors, their daughters and their sons are asking for phones, right? Initially borrowing them and now asking for them. There was a huge opportunity, huge market here. So I started going, knocking on doors, literally, in those days when you had to do that. No websites really of, mm-hmm. that people would check out. Knocking on doors of these large companies and saying, I've, I'm running a report about young people on mobile phones. And I want to introduce it to you. Every single company, so the big mobile cell phone carriers, the big handset manufacturers, all said no. Some said, we don't do kids, right? This is 98. And so I was destroyed. A year in, myself and my business partner at the time, it was Christmas. And a year into that business, we thought, we're not making any money out of this. We're not selling it. So let's give up. And we said, okay, we'll give it two more weeks until Christmas because it's not a good time because, you know, we have to face the family at Christmas. Let's do it in the new year. Right before Christmas, we got a phone call and somebody at the other end of the phone said to us, I've seen your report. I love it. It's exactly what we're about. It's all about our consumers and what they do and what they want and their drivers and how we communicate with them. But we're not a mobile phone company. Can we buy it? I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, please, we need the money to feed our families at Christmas. And I said, who are you? And they said, we're MTV. And oh, they wow. became our best client for 12 years because MTV in 98 were massive. They're not what they are today. They were <laughs> That's <like> true. <laughs> they were the youth brand in 98, the biggest, most influential youth brand of the era. And so they bought the report. And then from that, all the dominoes fell, all the agencies started buying it. And then all the mobile companies and handset manufacturers started buying it. So when it comes to challenge, I'd say to people, you know, that point about giving up, it comes to us a lot. And it, sometimes it's just one more try is worth it. You know, draw a line in the sand and say, okay, if it doesn't happen by this point, then let's have that conversation about giving up but give yourself a chance to make it happen. I love how you said MTV is not what it is back then, what it is today. Cause that's so right. Because it back then it's like it, music videos and stuff. They were yeah. kind of going for that kind of teenager kind of young person. And now it's like, they're really trying to go for that younger demographic, but you talked about not giving up. Do you feel mm. you would be where you are today if you never got that call from MTV? Because <sighs> you said how you kind of gave it, you, you and your business partner said, we're going to give it some time. But if you gave up right then and there and never yeah. got that phone call, where do you think you would have been right now? I don't know, Alex. I haven't thought of that. But it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Who knows? In every journey, there is a lucky break. And it's a big part of everybody's journey. I think if you look at every entrepreneur, there is that moment, defining moment. And things change on that moment. Hey, maybe if that didn't happen, then there would have been another one. You've got to be in the game to get lucky, right? I don't know. It Maybe that was just kind of last minute bit of divine intervention but i think you know you've got to have a bit of luck but you've got to be in the game to get those opportunities come up i mean i've had them later in my career most recently with the podcast agency i run had a very lucky meeting with a billionaire just happened to be in the same place eating the same thing just got talking and that opened up all the doors for us for um selling to corporates because once he was on board, he, he's a maverick. He's like Mark Cuban. It's a guy called Tony Fernandez who 
uh, owns AirAsia, like the, one of the most successful airlines in Asia. And he owns a football club and he used to own a Formula One team. But in Asia, he's like the Mark Cuban. So that's kind of like the level that he's at. So meeting him by accident, again, you would have thought, what happens if that didn't happen? Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's like you never know who you're going to meet, who's listening, who's in the area that can end up being the next step in your journey. And I think we talk about journey so much so far, and it's just so true because you just never know what's going to happen. Now, mm. is that company that you did with the telecom, is that still going or was that just it? you sold it and it was just a stepping stone for that next business that you're going on. Yeah. So in 2012, I sold out to my business partner and because I'd done that for 13 years and it had run its course. I lost my love for it. Markets change, people mm -hmm. change. And it was time to write another chapter. I'd had enough. And I think that's an important part is knowing when to quit and move on. I didn't get the deal that I wanted to, but if I'd stuck around any longer, it would have got worse. Yeah. So I got a, a reasonable deal. I then sat with my wife and my son was six at the time. And we had that conversation. What do I do next? I hadn't had a day off for maybe 10 years. Wow. You know, as an entrepreneur, that's real. Maybe, you know, when, when my son was born, yeah, I had a few days off. But I just kind of got into this crazy activity cycle. So I sat with my wife and I said, what do we do? I don't want to start another business, which a lot of entrepreneurs do straight away. Because it's not that necessarily they love business, but they just don't love inactivity. They don't love that silence. Mm -hmm. It drives them mad. They, they, they only, they know this addiction to activity, but I didn't want to do that. And my son being six, I thought was a great time to go and do something. So we said, what do we need to do? I don't need to start a business. I don't need to work at, right now. So we sold all our stuff, everything, and got our lives into three suitcases, literally. And I'm not saying that in a millennial, literally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually in three suitcases. Which that is tough, tough. Right? yeah. I challenge anybody to do that. Get your life into three suitcases. You know, that makes you really, you know, we had that conversation about valuing things as well. What do I really need in my life? Obviously people and then three suitcases of stuff. And that's a real challenge. We sold it everything, three suitcases. We bought one-way tickets to New Zealand, which is the polar opposite of where you are in London. So we flew out to New Zealand and we went and traveled the world for four years. And to me, that was like an opportunity to first go and really discover what was important in the journey. You know, that's kind of like in those journeys, you look at those part in the adventure where the hero walks into the wilderness. It was yeah. the equivalent of that, you know, it's go and find yourself, just leave everything behind. And it was an opportunity to, show the world to my son because what better way to teach him than to see and then as a part of it as well i wanted to just a side story but i i was fascinated by this challenge of doing the iron man triathlon so i wanted to do that as well so we found an island off the west coast of africa it's about 200 it's about 150 miles off the west coast of africa called it's in the canary islands a group of it's like a mini hawaii and then uh, we ended up living there for a year and a half. So I wanted to do the Ironman. And they do the Ironman there every year. And so I lived there with family, of course, put my son into like this remote Spanish, because uh, it's a Spanish colony, uh, hilltop village school, which was beautiful. It was like really familial and like a great place for a young kid to grow up. They're really caring and like old fashioned school, if you like, and uh, trained for a year for the race. So that was kind of everything that I wanted to work towards. And for my family as well, they, you know, that's absolutely what they wanted. They wanted to go and enjoy life, see the world. They love travel. It was a great experience. 
You talked about how you hadn't had a day off in 10 years as an entrepreneur. Mm. Was this making up for the sacrifices that you had to make with your being working so hard that you wanted to take this break to be with your family, to make Mm. those memories so that when your son gets older, he values the or he values the meaning of family. And maybe he does this in the future where he travels and learns Mm. more about the world. One thing that you learn on the journey as you get older and being old and wise, as I like to think, <laughs> nearly 50, that um, you know the value of time. Yep. And when you're young and you're starting out on the journey, you're really aggressive. You're going to make all these massive sacrifices. And a lot of it means putting in the hours. We know that part. We know the hustle that goes with being an entrepreneur. But what we don't know is so much how time flies and there is a part of an entrepreneur's brain which is always holding happiness ransom to a future event which is i'll be happy when i get here i'll be happy when i sell i'll be happy when we do a million i'll be happy when 50 whatever you know there's some arbitrary goal you're working towards what tends to happen is Along the way, some small successes. And every time you get something, it's like, okay, to the next, to the next, to the next. And then you get to the final part and it's like, okay, well, that really wasn't that interesting. I've got to get to the next one because that will be interesting. You know, now that I've sold, what if I, you know, am I a one trick pony? Is, can I repeat my success? So that's the mindset of an entrepreneur. Always, always in the future, working towards something. And the point about growing old is you'll become aware of your mortality and not in a morbid way, but in like Steve Jobs said, is that, you know, knowing that you're going to die is probably one of the most liberating things that you will feel in your life. Because when you're young, you're not going to die. You're immortal. But when you get older, you get exposed to death and whether it's, you know, your personal health, which is not, you know, things don't work like they used to yep. right? as you get older and you have to work harder, even like, you know, the waistline, it's like, wait a minute, you know, if you eat a carbohydrate meal at nine o'clock the night before, suddenly your waistline's expanded the next day. <laughs> it's like when I was 22, that never happened. You know, you could drink carbs to, you know, your life's fulfillment and nothing would ever happen, but now it changes. And then, you know, people around you. So in my journey, a defining moment was when my dad died halfway through that journey and he died unexpectedly and what that really taught me he died he was diagnosed with cancer at 59 and he'd worked all his life for one employer after exiting the the marines all his life saved up very like as a farmer you know what farmers are like they they squirrel they save they put pennies away they're very frugal and he was like that he was always saving for the future and even though he didn't earn a lot of money, he just you know, put all this nest egg away. And the point was that he was saving up for the day that he retired. So with, his, with my mom, he could you know, enjoy life. And he got diagnosed in 59 and died in 63 and never retired. And that made a huge impact on me because I looked at that and thought, hang on a second. It's like I'm doing the same. I could be gambling my whole life on this outcome and it may never happen. And it's completely beyond my control that it's a throw of a die. If you make it healthy, that's one thing. If you and your partner make it healthy, that's another thing. You know, that's twice as likely not to happen, right? If you look at the statistics to make it to 65, where you and your partner are both physically and mentally competent and cognizant, the statistics are quite low. So I look at that and think, wow, why should I wait until I'm 65 to enjoy life? Because that I may not ever get to that point. So why not do it now? And that was this seed planted in my head, which just grew into something. Like, you know what people say when they retire? The first thing they're going to do is travel. Yep. But why not do it now? Because if you build a business, if you build a lifestyle where you can do that, you can do that. So I saw this as a mini retirement. You know, why not do this now? Because let's make the stories now. Let's make the memories now. 
because in 20 years time, who knows? So that was a really defining point when you're touched by your mortality. It's like writing a book, right? You know, you don't really understand the book until the final chapter. That's the purpose, right? But why wait until the final chapter to really understand what all this is about? Let's do it now. And that's what I put a challenge out to your audience today is that so many of us are deferring that understanding and deferring happiness to a future event. When really what we need to do is we think about it now. Let's not wait until that happens. Let's do it now. And you can, if you set it up right. You know, you brought up a great point because I just had that conversation with family about traveling and stuff and how I'm, I, sometimes we're always like, well, our schedule doesn't work out. And it's almost like, and I've been told that because I'm like, I have to make sure it's right and wasting time. But then I told myself, I'm like, you got one life to live and you got to enjoy every moment. So changing that mindset and mentality where I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to travel. I'm going to enjoy making the memories. And even with friends, it's like, go enjoy these activities and stuff Mm. because you're going to look back at it years from now and remember those good times and be like, let's continue that. So I love how you're saying that. Enjoy what you're doing now or Mm. do all the things you want to do right now instead of waiting years from now. Because if I look at when I'm retiring, well, I'm still young. It's like retirement is way in my future and I'm not even thinking about that. I want to do it now and and enjoy the experience while I can. You have to be strong about it because you, you have to remember that, for example, families are older. They're of a different era where they were trained, indoctrinated in deferment of gratification. You know, that has created the economic system that we have, right? You go to school, you go to university, you then graduate, you understudy in a large corporate and you do your 10, 15, 20 years. And then if you're lucky, you get promoted and then you can enjoy golf. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what worked, right? And therefore anything outside of that is a bit wacky. So we have to understand that's what people are trained to do, to think. And therefore every conversation you have about that, people may not agree with it, but you have to understand that's their worldview. Their worldview is different. And therefore you can't win that argument. It's better to find, just say, okay, fine but find the people that do understand it. And there's a great book actually that for your, for your audience, you may, they may be interested in. And it's, it's a bit, again, it may be sound morbid, but it's an amazing book. There's a book um, written by a palliative nurse called Bonnie Ware. She's Australian and palliative nurses, the people that care for people in the end of life. Right. And it's like the final chapter. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this book and go and search for it. Google it. Bonnie Ware Palliative or Bonnie Ware. I think, I can't remember the name of the book, something of dying. That's it. <laughs> Regrets of the dying. It's like, it's mind blowing stuff because basically what she did is she did these interviews with all these people who are terminally ill and she asked them, what are your regrets? And for me, those are the people we need to listen to because when everything falls away, your money, your success, your title, your material possessions, all of that goes, it doesn't matter anymore. What is left is what's important. And it's quite touching and a little bit heartbreaking to read the results of these interviews. But what's really interesting, Alex, is what they say consistently throughout countries and throughout cultures is that the number one regret that people have of their life is no is spending too much time at work and that was consistent throughout life nobody ever said oh i wish i spent more time in the office <laughs> <laughs> and you know there were lots of sort of sub regrets there like one ones that i i wish i had you know listened to my inner voice i wish i'd spent more time with my family but that was it those three and it was you know all comes down to spending time with people you care about That's what people regretted. I wish I'd spent more time with those people. And we're going to be there one day. We're going to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. You, I, all the listeners are going to be on our deathbeds and we're going to have those regrets. 
And so let's listen to those voices of the future in our journey. They're waiting for us. And take heed, just like in any journey, you know, the guy with the beard pops up on the road with the staff and says, you know, listen here, young adventurer, you're going down that path. I'm going to take you down this one. We've got to listen to those voices, right? And they are powerful guides and they know the truth. When did you finally set foot in and stayed stationary after your journey with traveling with your family? Uh, so there was a year and a half in the Canary Islands, and then we moved to Japan. My wife's Japanese. So we, we, we actually got kind of bored of living on tropical islands. So we'd lived on, you know, like Okinawa. We lived on Canary Islands. Um, we lived in Cyprus. Spent a bit of time in Fiji, Hawaii. It gets kind of boring. People like don't understand that. They look at Instagram. Oh, living the dream, living my best life. <laughs> As people say now, yeah, you know, it looks. You know, the sunsets are amazing. I got some great sunsets. I tell you, you know. But reality, if you're an entrepreneur, does that make you happy after some time? Not really. It's the challenge that makes you happy, and this is like one of the important discoveries of that journey, you know, going into the wilderness and coming back and thinking, actually living on a tropical island is not what it's about for me, for some people. Yeah. But not for me, for me, it was about what I really like is challenge. Mm -hmm. That makes me happy. And other people make me happy. Talking to people like you, Alex makes me happy. That is what it's about. So how do I create a lifestyle where I can do that? And so to do that, I had to settle down. We had to move to a place where there was internet. And we had to move to a place where you could access people. So we moved to mainland Japan, just outside Tokyo. And then just to get things going from that's where the podcast business started. But I think that's important. You know, the point there is that we as entrepreneurs want to think we're defining our own narrative, writing our own story. And however, when we do that, even those times we absorb the stories of other people without consciously understanding that those are not our stories. You know, we can take bits of it, like those entrepreneurs I mentioned earlier, but ultimately we have to define it ourselves, write it ourselves. That maybe to be a success is not to build a business and sell it for 50 million. Maybe, you know, if you don't do that, that's fine. Or to be a success is not to be Mark Zuckerberg. That's fine. You don't have to be a billionaire to be successful. To be a success is just to be able to do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. That's the important part of the journey is that, you write that. I think it was Bob Dylan that said success is a man, you know, when a man gets up in the morning, goes to bed at night and in between does what he wants. And that's really important. So looking at the tropical island thing, you know, that's not necessarily the default. That's not necessarily the only way to be successful. And you have to realize that, that really the key here is find whatever makes you happy and then build a lifestyle around that. Do you have a favorite moment of doing podcasts or being involved in that type of business? Oh, there are many. So, yeah, I, bumping into Tony Fernandez was one of the highlights. Yeah. Because I met him in the Hawker Center, which is like an open food court here in Asia. And he was like at this, you know, billionaires don't go to these places. <laughs> they're usually the ones grub hubbing it or like ordering yeah. it getting it delivered to them i don't know if or you hotels have yeah <laughs> so he he's you know a celebrity he that was so we went there on a friday night i'd just done a podcast with a friend just opened a studio here in singapore so we celebrated and we went down to this hawker center he was giving me the authentic singapore experience let's go and do the hawker center thing graham great let's go friday night packed in the days, this was a few years ago, this three years ago, when um, people ate out, right? No seats left. We grabbed the last seats, this table. Everybody was, you know, like still standing, waiting around for their place to sit. And then this couple came over and um, they said, can we sit there? There were like two seats next to us. So I moved my bags and said, yeah, go and sit down. And they put their stuff down and went off to order food. And they came back and the guy was like, sharing food with us, you know, sharing like chicken wings. He said, yeah, I love chicken wings, have some food. And they got chatting 
And then he started asking everybody, what do you do? He asked my friend and my friend said, I make medical devices. And he showed him like these glasses that he makes with a hearing aid attached to them. And he asked me and I said, I just started a podcast agency here in Asia. Then I asked him and I said, what do you do? And he said, I own an airline. <laughs> I looked around it. It was him sitting next to me. You know what it's like when you see somebody out of context and just corner of the eye thing. I wasn't really looking at him. I said, I thought I recognized you. And then we got chatting and we spent about an hour eating dinner and talking together. I said to him, um, I want to do a podcast with you. You know, I want you to tell your story in your words. And he said, yeah, great. Here's my WhatsApp number. Be in touch. And so that's how it happened. There was a lot of back and forth and cancellations. One day we had arranged to do the podcast. We were due to fly to Malaysia where his headquarters are. And he just texted me and said, sorry, I've, I've got to rearrange. I'm meeting the prime minister. That's <laughs> so like, fine. I understand. That's I'm fine. not as important. <laughs> you, you do that, right? And then there was another time he came to Singapore. And um, again, they were meant to come to the studio. It got rearranged. And I... I texted his, uh, I WhatsApped his comms guy, head of comms. And I said, uh, he said, no, no can do, but we can do it in KL next time. I said, well, what about if we do it on Tony's private jet? Cause I know he owns a Bombardier private jet, right? And there was a, like a delay. He said, let me check. Came back, said, no, can't do it for security oh. reasons. But eventually we got it and we flew in with all our podcast gear. So me, my engineer and other team member, three of us, we all flew out, you know, got the six o'clock morning flight to Kuala Lumpur, flew in, landed, milling around, drinking coffee, very excited, very nervous. And then got escort, you know, all the com communications people turn up, PR people turn up with their clipboards and stuff like that. Give us our passes, like usher us through and say, yeah, he's, he's coming. Yeah, I think it was 1130, the interview set up all our stuff in the room. And then just, I, it, Alex, it must have been 10 minutes before the interview was due to take place. Somebody comes running into the room and they said, wait, 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 um, there's been a problem. And my heart just sunk. I thought, oh my God, we've come all the way here. They're going to cancel the podcast. He said, Tony hasn't been, Tony's PA hasn't been told about this. So there's a schedule mismatch. I thought, oh God. It's going to be cancelled and it's going to be, you know, seven more months of back and forth. And he, and he said, so he's coming down now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And he sort of, he, five minutes later, he, he comes in and there he is. And uh, he walks over, shakes hands and all the podcast equipment set up. And I'm really excited, ready to go. And he said, uh, okay, so I've just got one last request. And I thought he was going to say, I've only got 10 minutes <laughs> because of the schedule mismatch. And I was ready to strangle him, Alex. And that would have been an interesting political yep. issue <laughs> event. He said, um, uh, so I've only got one request and that is that uh, I want to start a podcast business. <laughs> it was like completely out of the blue. And, uh, yeah, so that was a bit bizarre, but went ahead, did the, the interview, lasted an hour, got talking, and afterwards we did business with, with him in AirAsia. They were our first client. So it's a long story, but the point is that was my highlight. It was an amazing event. They can never take that away from us, and I'll always look back on that. It's on YouTube if you Google it, Graham Brown, Tony Fernandez. You can see the whole interview. It was really good. It was a great conversation. You know, that moment kind of goes back to what you talked about with your telecom business, where you weren't giving up on getting that interview. You were willing mm. to travel, go meet, get it canceled, continue. But it, it was all about the outcome and how then it led to something bigger, which your telecom business, that first client led to many more and a bigger impact. So it kind of shows that you kind of made a full circle in a way where kind of that momentum came back to you. But I, I mean, I've had those, not as crazy as that kind of story, but 
I've had, I've had those moments, but it's just Mm. amazing where, and I think you can relate to this as we're both podcasters, when we meet those people that we know, or we've heard about, and you're actually speaking one-on-one with them, you're just like starstruck in a way. And it's kind Mm. of like, at my age, it's like a lot, some of these people are, I looked up to, or I grew up watching and stuff. And, and I'm talking to them, obviously during COVID, we can't really do that like in person, but still the power of zoom and stuff. It's mm. just amazing. The things that we get to talk about with these people and the things that they share. And they're so open about it. It's just, it's rewarding. It's kind of like the going back to no regrets, like, I didn't even know this was going to, I'm in a year and a half into this. I thought eh, I'm going to do this for a month, two months, and then I'm just going to be done. But it's like been the best experience ever. And like I said, no regrets. I'm going to continue. Why? I want to know why is it the best experience ever? What have, because I think your lessons are powerful for other people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines thinking, shall I start a podcast? And I think the, probably what you'll share is probably what they don't know it can do for you, right? It's one of those things where it shows people something that they've never seen from me. And I think like with my, as I work also, they think, oh, you only know how to do this. But I mm. look at it, there's a lot more. And with the power of the, or my title, Rise of the Challenge, I'm going through challenges. I talk to my guests and we share the challenges that we go through and people can relate but I also look at it as it's a networking opportunity, mm. a personal branding, something that I can put my name on and I'm proud to be doing it. Mm. Yeah, the networking. There's nothing better. Oh, I totally than... agree. I agree with that. Because it's like, if I didn't do this, we wouldn't be talking to each other. We would have never yeah. met. We wouldn't have no idea about each other. But with us meeting on Podmatch, I think it was mm. Podmatch. Mm-hmm. And then now connecting through LinkedIn, it just shows that we're going to be even growing and networking mm-hmm. past this interview. And that's going to be the best part because it doesn't just stop at the interview. It continues on Absolutely. For years on now. You know exactly the power of it. That is way more uh, sustainable and long-term than a coffee conversation. Yep. You think about in business, especially business development, growing your network. We have a lot of coffee conversations and Zoom calls these days, but they will all fade into memory. They will disappear. Yet if you create something together, that person you do it with will always be part of your network. You'll always be looking out for you. And if somebody asks, who do you know that does this? You'll always be in their consciousness. And so that is so powerful that we live in a world where many of those coffee conversations that we have could be captured. Yep. Coffee conversations at scale, if you like, that is really lost. There's a lot of wasted effort going out and talking to people. And then that disappears because what you talk about with that person could be valuable to somebody else. I agree. And that is, you know, you and I are having this conversation and somebody may be listening to it weeks later years later and it could be somebody in a country we've never been in think about the power of that that's how you scale the the most the least scalable part of you and me is us right but our conversations do scale and so everybody listening today is thinking about how do i build my personal brand the challenge of building your personal brand is you Mm -hmm. you've got to find a way to scale you we can't clone you legally but we can clone (laughs) your conversations right you know, look at what Alex is doing, you know, having these conversations with people and then putting them out there for everybody who could benefit from them. I totally agree. And that's the mission of the show is basically share with people the stories and help them. Even if we're, like we said, we're not telling them how to live their lives. We're just sharing and see, can they relate or do they need that little extra little back up in a way and i mm. tell anyone do a podcast i it, originally my podcast was supposed to be sports with a bunch of friends but when my friends didn't want to do it i'm like well <laughs> i gotta change my path here and like i said no regrets to it absolutely you, that's the pivot as your son is older and your family is getting older do they look back at the experience of the traveling and remember those times and they mm. kind of look at it and like 
when are we going on our next trip? When's that next stage for us? Yeah, certainly do look back on it fondly. And there, of course, I will put a caveat in. There were a lot of bad times as well, because when you're living without the community support mm-hmm. that you have naturally when you live in one place, your neighbors, those loose connections, your family, your coworkers, we don't realize how valuable those things are to us in our day-to-day life. When you don't have any of that, and especially when you, you don't have anything physically, you're very vulnerable. And this lifestyle, living out of a suitcase, the highs are very high and the lows are very low. I wouldn't do it if there are cracks in the relationships. It will magnify with that out of the way, the good times are really good. There are memories which will never go away. And I feel that's what life is. It's just a collection of stories. And you will understand your life through these stories, these chapters, these scenes, if you like. And that's really what it is. It's that how have I lived my life? This collection of stories that we put together, memories uh, that make us feel good about this stuff, all the, the stories we're telling now and creating. So that's really important because, you know, Again, no regrets. And also the part about next adventure. My son's 15 now. So his next adventure will be without us. Yep. You know, whatever he does. I don't want him to go and travel the world just because we did. And it's really his choice. But I, I would like him to feel no boundaries. This is really important. That, for example, if he wanted to go and work in America or if he wanted to go and study in Europe, or if he wanted to start a business in Japan, there was no sense that that was outside his, you know, possibilities. It was just normal that he didn't feel that that's what people did locally and therefore is excluded to him. This is really important because I think as our global economy becomes more integrated, there is a need for those boundaryless people. For example, think of the trade, how interconnected America and China are, even though we're at loggerheads politically, that we need people who can smooth the cracks, who can operate between these worlds. You know, you think about Asia, for example, by the end of this decade, by the end of 2030, two thirds of the world's middle class will live in Asia. Think about that, how that's going to be this like, you know, it's going to be like a magnetic force that will bend all business globally we need people who understand that we need people who can service these markets that can interoperate between america and asia or between europe and asia so i would hope his next adventure leverages all of that of course for myself and my wife it's like when he's off doing his thing we're gonna go travel for sure (laughs) right it's gonna be a different experience but yeah, I think, you know, travel is not the only adventure, right? Which is really important. Like starting a business is an adventure. Being a traveler and being an entrepreneur are very similar. You can be a tourist or a traveler. You can be an entrepreneur or an employee in life. Mm-hmm. And they have very similar qualities. Taking on a challenge, starting a podcast is an adventure, right? Because you are on stage. You're vulnerable. You're out of your comfort zone. You don't have to go to another country to take an adventure you can just do something that scares you and that makes you a better person i'm just thinking you and your wife instead of three suitcases you're gonna bump it up to four suitcases now you're gonna battle alex (laughs) i was good when you said that before i'm like i think your wife was probably gonna be like um so you only get half of one suitcase and i get (laughs) i i actually do yeah you're completely right you know what it's like and (laughs) I don't want to go into a political domain talking about <laughs> how husbands and wives are when it comes to stuff. But generally, there's one that is a hoarder and one that is a detoxer of declutterer, right? So that's, that's the balance. I think you need both. This, I, I have undertaken challenges before. When I was doing the mobile business, telecoms, uh, I, there was a, a time when I traveled out of one backpack because I set myself this challenge that can I live and effectively do sales calls. So I'd be flying into JFK and then work my way across the US and go up to Canada and then end up back on the West Coast selling to mobile companies and agencies. And I would live out of a carry-on. 
so I did that. And then out of LAX, I would fly to Japan, Narita, and then fly to Singapore. And then I'd do a round the world trip with a round world ticket. And I did that for eight weeks with just a carry on case. So I didn't have to check in any luggage. And that was a challenge in itself. Like, how can you get your life into one suitcase, which would probably be about, I don't know how many pounds that would be, but you can imagine just a carry on case. You've got to get your spare shoes in there. You've got to get your, all your washing stuff in there, or your, you've got to get your laptop in there. <laughs> and so you're buying all these kind of like vacuum seal tools and so yeah. on, so you can pack everything down. Yeah, it's good. I, I mean, that for me was a challenge. So I have lived that existence in half a suitcase, if you like, and I do enjoy it. It's quite liberating because like when you've got no stuff, I think people are scared by that. But then you realize actually it's quite liberating. It frees, frees up your mind. I think it looks like if you look at your house or any of the listeners, look at what's in your house, like what's important and like what is needed. Like sometimes mm. people buy things as impulse, but... I think when I'm look, I'm I'm thinking, well, I got to put my computer in my suitcase. How am I going to do my podcast now? It's just like, well, that would mean get a laptop and then do it from there. So it's like, okay, we can switch over. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? Anything that's on deck right now for you? Mm. Well, right now we're building our podcast agency here in Singapore. And... We're three years into that. We've got very good clients, a lot focused on enterprise level clients. So I'd like to continue growing that. And we have a podcast guesting service now, which we're finding is growing very fast. People are interested in getting on to podcasts, which is a real growth area for thought leaders because you know there's not a lot of events going on now. People aren't reading white papers like they used to. So that's a really interesting growth area as well. I'd like to continue growing that and just continue with the mission of giving the world a voice. You know, I believe in podcasting as a great democratized platform. I, you know, from the early days, I was a big fan of MTV and I love what they did is they gave all these artists a voice. They gave them a platform. People who never heard of that got prominence because they weren't what would traditionally played on radio back yep. then, right? MTV gave all these new artists a voice. And I was so inspired by that going back to the eighties that I saw this in podcasting as well. And I thought, wow, I'd really love to do that. I would love to not only help these corporates humanize their communication, do it in a much more authentic way, but also teach people how to podcast. I, not doing a course or anything like that i can do but i think the best way of teaching people is just to be an example mm -hmm. just to be out there just like you alex you know people see you it's like how do i podcast i can do that and so i'd like to be that i'd like to be out there just giving people the example that you can do this as well and i think the world is a much better place if everybody's able to tell their story on their terms then we would be in a better place I agree. Because, and that, that's it. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to give people an example that you can do this as well. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Hmm. Thinking about the answer. <laughs> we ask the tough questions here. It is. It's a good question as well. There's so much you can advise here, but let's keep it short. I would say surround yourself with good people. It's really important. You think about all adventures. They were never taken alone. You know, they're always a band of merry men. <laughs> and women, of course, I'm talking about in the heroic narrative. Find good people to join you on this adventure. That's really important. That's probably the most important advice. Advisors, mentors, uh, you know, if you're a founder, find a co-founder if you need it, but surround yourself with good people. Yeah. Because firstly, they will help you get through the obstacles. And secondly, they'll make it enjoyable. It's hard on your own. 
So I'd start there. That's probably the best way. Is that if you don't, and here's the thing, Alex, if you can't find those people in your network, start a podcast because you'll attract them. Yep. That is, you know, I, I think the number one reason to do it, like we said earlier, is about the networking. And I think about that in terms of your journey. You're sharing this journey with people and you're documenting it. And so you can talk about your challenges. You can bring people into your network and help you deal with this. That would be my advice. Well, Graham, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people today and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Alex, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for being a great host. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.